Well, hello there, happy innovators. How are you doing today, huh? Are you having a good week? I hope you're having a good week. You know, I think I'm going to try something a little bit different this time around with the Singularity Podcast. Uh, It's an idea that I've been throwing around, at least in my own mind, for the past couple months. Um, What I'm going to do this week, instead of sitting down and doing one long podcast all in one day, what I decided I would try to do this time around is to add an installment of talking uh, every day of the week. So... You know, maybe I'll do 10 minutes or 15 minutes on Monday, then Tuesday, then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then I'll edit that all down and release it to you as a single podcast, okay? So today is Monday, February 3rd, 2020, and I'm sitting here at my desk with my coffee, of course, ready to start my experiment. Okay, what's on my mind today? What's on my mind on Monday? Well... Really, what's on my mind are all the projects that I'm working on right now that I want to finish and get out to the public as quickly as possible. And um, I would imagine that by the end of this week, the projects that I'm starting to work on today, or not starting to work on, but continuing to work on and hopefully, you know, wrap up and finish uh, are... Okay, I have three videos that I've made for the song Division going to be releasing the new version of Division uh, along with three different videos and originally I had filmed one video and I thought you know I'd film that video finish mixing the song put it all together and that would be done but then over the course of time um, you know I wound up coming up with some other ideas and everything so ultimately what wound up happening was I wound up having three different videos for the song Division, and I was going to pick one and release just one, but then I thought about it, and it's like, well, I did the work already, like, what difference would it make, or what harm would it do to go right ahead and just release three videos? So, in the near future, uh, hopefully by the end of this week, um, well, I guess hopefully on Friday, I'll be talking to you about how I am finished with this project, but um, there will be three separate videos um, being made available for the song Division. And um, let's see, aside from that, what's on my mind? Well, you know, the Super Bowl just happened, and, uh, you know, even though the Patriots weren't playing, it was actually kind of nice to have two teams playing that were not the New England Patriots, you know, my hometown team. Um, And, uh, I gotta say, I had picked the San Francisco 49ers to win that game, and I was wrong. (laughs) Way wrong. Uh, So, the Kansas City Chiefs did it. After 50 years of drought, you know, championship drought, they have managed to go all the way. And uh, congratulations to the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers, because both teams, you know, made it that far. It's a difficult thing to do. Um... You know, I found this YouTube video a couple of days ago, and uh, it was footage of this polar bear, you know, attacking this, uh, like, pod that this cameraman was in. It was a plexiglass and steel, you know, pod that this guy was taking pictures from, you know, from inside, like a protective barrier. And this polar bear started hammering on this 
pod that this guy was in. And, you know, this guy's remaining calm and everything. And this animal is just like attacking this, this massive animal is attacking this pod that this guy is in. And, uh, you know, it's just so amazing to watch, like the power of those animals. You know, they're just, they're, they're so strong and they're massive, you know. And, uh, of course, this idiot is sitting there on their turf in this pod doing his thing and that's good and all because I do believe that human beings have dominion over the animal kingdom. I mean, I believe we have been given dominion over them and uh, animals are not humans, you know. I guess that's a <laughs> that's a topic for a whole separate thing, but maybe I will talk about that today because it's something that I've been wanting to talk about. But um, there was another video of this grizzly bear that had, you know, buried some kind of stash of food for itself and these cameramen were there filming this grizzly bear off in the horizon you know like they're a pretty good distance away but still close enough to be in extreme danger I mean this animal could charge them and there'd be nothing they could do grizzly bears are just eating machines you know and um, so sure enough you know this this grizzly bear starts to get suspicious and starts to wonder if these guys are trying to steal his food, you know? So he starts approaching these guys like, you know, he's going to mess them up. And, uh, you know, luckily for these guys, there was a guy on the crew who knew how to handle the situation. Like, Let's get down on our knees, you know, in a submissive posture, so the animal can read our body language and not sense that we're threatening him or whatever that we're you know we're submitting that he has the power you know kind of thing and uh, so this thing this animal gets pretty close but then it winds up turning around but you could hear it in these guys' voices and the stuff that they were saying like they were pretty scared like this thing was gonna eat them and like there would be nothing they could do other than hit it with their tripod or hit it with their camera or run as fast as they possibly can but you know when you're uh, out there in the turf of those animals you don't stand a chance if you want to run you're not going to outrun them and you know if you ask me it's one of those things where you know you just don't be there they are where they are and we are where we are and let's just kind of keep it that way you know it's kind of like to me um, the ocean you know, the ocean is really great, it's beautiful, and it's nice to swim in, I will admit. It is nice and everything, but really, you know, it's the domain of these animals. You know, that's where they live. And I remember once I was walking along the shoreline of uh, Perdido Key. I think it was in Florida. I think that's where it was. But as I was walking along the shoreline, with my feet maybe in like two or three inches of water, you know, I took a step and like maybe about a foot in front of where I stepped, this stingray shot out of the sand and like took off, you know, and it kind of startled me at first because it was so close to my foot. But then I got to thinking about it and it's like, well, what if I would have stepped on it? Like they have every right to be there. That's where they live. Like, they can't be anywhere else. So, you know, stay out of the water. Like, stay out of their turf. That was kind of like my thought. Was, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense, you know. Um, 
and I guess you know there are people who like to surf and all that kind of stuff, and that's great. That's your choice, but the way I see it is, is that the ocean is not a playground. You know, the ocean is uh, a habitat for animals that live in it. So, you know, respect that and kind of like stay out of there. That's where they are. If you get eaten by a shark, you know, it's because you went into their turf. If you get attacked by some kind of sea creature or stung by a jellyfish or whatever, it's because you were in their space. They're not in your space. You're in their space. Respect that. Stay out of there. You know? And I guess, you know, that kind of uh, makes me think about this the whole idea of the innocence of animals. Like the animals, you know, at least according to my belief system, okay? Like we were once much like the animals where we didn't know right from wrong. You know, we operated on an instinct and, uh, instinct alone and no judgment or uh, no faculties to make uh, critical decisions you know we just we were just innocent like the animals are I mean you can see that when you watch uh, any footage of like any animal really they don't really know what they're doing like they don't really know they're, you can see it in their eyes you know, especially like with gorillas and animals like that, like primates, you can see in their faces that they're innocent. They don't know right from wrong. You know, that uh, we're different than them. I don't care what anybody says. Humans are not animals. We're not animals. We're different. We're way, way different and way more sophisticated than any other animal. And if you doubt that, well, <laughs> good luck with that. But, um, you know, it's one of those things that just kind of frustrates me when people try to equate animals with humans. It's like, it's so stupid. We are not, we are not primates. You know, we are not like gorillas and chimpanzees and the vice versa. You know, animals are not people. Like I see sometimes, uh, people putting like sweaters and hats and stuff like that like on their dogs or their animals because they think it's cute but to me I always felt that was kind of weird like animals are not people you don't put sweaters on animals they have fur like that's what they have and it's yeah I get it it's all cutesy and all that kind of stuff it's you know I guess certain kinds of people do Okay, I'm not one of those people. Like, uh, not a real big animal person, but I do respect animals. I grew up with a lot of animals around and stuff, and that's probably why I don't like them as much now. Like, I don't choose to have them in my own space and stuff, for the most part, because, uh, you know, I grew up with that. And um, I just don't want that in my house, like in my life, but... I understand there's a lot of people who really love their animals, and I understand the idea that for a lot of people, animals are not just, you know, an animal in the house. They are companionship for people who are lonely. And, man, I get that. You know, I do, I do, I get that. But putting sweaters and human clothing on animals, I don't know. It's a little weird. It's as weird to me as, like, those movies where they have animals talking with human voices it's like 
yeah, I get it. It's like Disney or something, and it's like entertainment or whatever, but it's like weird. <laughs> it's weird. Kind of like stupid, you know. Um, I'm not interested in watching like, you know, a talking animal. I'm more interested in watching a actual animal in its habitat and uh, learning about the kind of stuff that they do, you know. So, uh, yeah, there's my thoughts for this Monday morning. And uh, I'll pick up the microphone again tomorrow and kind of see what's on my mind then. So until tomorrow, sayonara. Well, good morning, happy innovators. This fine Tuesday morning, February 4th, 2020. I got my cup of coffee here once again. Ooh, I'm, I'm tired. I'm, <laughs> I'm tired this morning. I'm dragging. But uh, I figured I would continue with my experiment today. Talk to you a little bit. About 15 minutes maybe. And then I'll pick it up again tomorrow. So what's on my mind this morning? Actually, I had thought about this one a little bit. Let me get a sip of my coffee here first. Mm. Ah, so good. One more sip. Oh my goodness. Wow. Um... So what's on my mind this morning? Actually, I thought of a pretty funny story I wanted to share for Tuesday. Tuesday's kind of a special day for me, you know. Um, it's a, a busy day for me, really. It's a day I exercise. Uh, you know, I do a special kind of routine on Tuesdays. You know, a lot of chores get done, a lot of domestic stuff, but uh, it gives me a chance to kind of work out, exercise, meditate, and uh, kind of prepare myself for the week, you know. Um, so I was thinking about this today. Um, you know, uh, I went to Las Vegas a couple years ago to visit my mother-in-law and my father-in-law. And when I went there, I bought this cowboy hat, you know. And my wife has always told me that she likes the way I look when I wear a cowboy hat. So when we were in Vegas, and it was real sunny, really hot, and I'm, you know, fair-skinned Irish guy, so I decided to buy this cowboy hat, and I was wearing it, and we went to this place called the uh, Madame Tussauds House of Wax, like a wax museum, right? And, uh, I mean, a long time ago, my wife and I went to the one in New York City. We were there, actually, for a movie opening that I had done the soundtrack for, and we got to stay in New York for a couple of days and while we were there we went to Madame Tussauds House of Wax and man that was an experience in and of itself like it was like really tripped out like uh, at least for me it was because I had never seen anything like that before and I don't know if you've ever been to a wax museum before but it's really kind of like uh, a borderline like creepy experience you know they're not statues they're wax figures so they're flesh tones and they look like they're alive you know they really do look lifelike um i guess when you get up close you can kind of see that they're fake when the lighting is you know not doing its thing and you're up close to it you can, you can tell that it's fake but when you're standing back maybe five or ten feet they, they look real i mean they look like they could be breathing you know 
And uh, I remember as we were walking through Madame Tussauds in New York City, one of the things that kind of struck me was, well, the first thing that struck me was the Brad Pitt uh, wax figure they had there did not look like Brad Pitt. So supposedly it was based off of his actual proportions and like a casting of his face or something like it's, you know, meant to look lifelike. It looked very different than he does in movies and stuff. But another thing that stood out to me at Madame Tussauds in New York City was they had a wax figure of J-Lo, you know, wearing her famous dress with her breasts like practically popping out. But what was really kind of sad about it to me was like they had her posing in such a way where her butt was kind of like sticking out like she was kind of like bending over and pushing her butt cheeks like out because you know J-Lo is famous for you know her butt being big I guess and I just thought to myself how sad you know to have all that talent and all that kind of stuff and what really what it comes down to is your butt's big guys like that and that's what they emphasized with her wax figure just one of those things that kind of stuck out in my mind like what a pity that as your you know wax figure you know outlives you even and you know time passes what you'll be remembered for is you know not your dancing not your acting not your singing you'll be remembered for your butt being big because people like that they like to look at your butt (laughs) It's <laughs> like, oh, how sad, you know. You won't see the John Wayne wax figure bending over and sticking his butt out, you know. Something like that, right? Not going to happen. But uh, anyway, so we're in Las Vegas visiting my, my in-laws. And uh, this, of course, was when my mother-in-law was still alive. But uh, they said, Mike, you know, what do you want to do? What if you could do anything today? What would you want to do? And I said, there's two things I want to do. I want to go to the Hard Rock Cafe, all right, in Las Vegas. And I want to go to the Madame Tussauds House of Wax. I want to check out the Las Vegas House of Wax. So we go there and we're, we're in there. It's really interesting, you know, not much different than New York, maybe a little bit smaller than New York's actually. But, um, you know, I'm wearing this cowboy hat and kind of like some casual clothes, but nice clothes. You know, a button-up shirt and some pants. And I'm not wearing shorts and flip-flops, you know. So I'm standing there in the Madame Tussauds House of Wax in Vegas checking out, oh, I forget who it was. It might have been like Susan Sarandon or something. Like just kind of standing there. And I'm just, just checking it out. And then all of a sudden, I when I went to move, this lady next to me who I did not know like jumped out of her skin (laughs) okay like I just turned around to walk away but apparently she thought I was one of the wax figures (laughs) scared the bejesus out of her you know I mean she (laughs) jumped out of her skin she thought I was a wax figure and when my wife saw that she just started laughing so hard and you know, her parents are like, what is so funny? And she explained it. And we all just kind of hit the floor laughing, you know. Um, so, you know, if you were to ask me, what was I thinking about this morning? That's one of the things that just, you know, for some unknown reason, you know, it popped into my head. <laughs> true story. True story. And I would say this, you know, if you 
ever have the chance to go to uh, a wax museum, it's highly recommended. It's a pretty interesting experience, um, even from like an anthropological angle, uh, just kind of seeing these these celebrities, these people that we see all the time on television and stuff, and to have the opportunity to kind of stand next to them and kind of examine them a little bit, just kind of see. It's cool. It's pretty cool. Um, you know, one last observation I can tell you about that I made at the House of Wax, uh, particularly the one in New York City, um, is, you know, they had this room full of world leaders, you know, uh, the greats, obviously, uh, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, FDR, uh, Pope John Paul II, um, the Dalai Lama, um, you know, on and on the list goes. Uh, and one of the things that both my wife and I noticed uh, is that a lot of the world leaders, the famous ones, were really, really tall people. Like, I don't, I don't think that people really understand that. Like, when you're standing next to John F. Kennedy compared to most other men, he was taller. I'm not sure if there's a connection, okay, between their leadership and their physical height, you know, their physical makeup. But I would imagine it's got something to do with it, right? Like if you're in a group of people and you're the tallest person in the group, you're looking down to everyone in the room, that has to play a factor in your ability to be a leader, you know, your leadership skills or whatever. Um, And, you know, you can kind of see that when you walk through those wax museums and you go into a room where there are world leaders, you'll notice that that they're all very tall with the exception of a couple like Teddy Roosevelt or, um, you know, um, like Hillary Clinton, you know, but, uh, even somebody like Trump, you know, somebody like Ben Franklin, somebody like Eisenhower, um, Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan. I mean, these guys were all compared to other men. They were much taller you know, so make of that whatever you will. And uh, I guess that'll be my wrap up for Tuesday, February 4th, 2020. And I'll pick it up again tomorrow morning, folks. Peace out. Well, good morning, happy innovators. It's Wednesday, February 5th, 2020. And, uh, you know, I kind of found myself thinking about somebody today, a family member of mine. Um, my niece, my first niece, the oldest niece in my family that I have, um, you know, she's a special person. She really is. Um, she's what I would call a, like a natural born caregiver. You know, she's one of those people that like whenever somebody needs help, you know, she shows up. She takes the time to, to help out. And um, like a good example of that was like when one time my mother was in the hospital, she was sick. She was in the hospital and my father was, you know, by himself, you know, pretty much for the first time in his life uh, since he's been married at least. And that's been a long time, 
about 60 or 70 years my parents had been married. So he was kind of out of his element, you know, and he was worried about my mom and he was just kind of going through a thing, you know, and my niece showed up every day. She cooked all the meals for my dad. Uh, You know, she would stay with him at the hospital, you know, when nobody else had the time or no one else was able to. She would somehow find the time and make the effort. And a lot of the time, you know, I kind of feel like, when I think about her anyway, I kind of think like she's like an unsung kind of person. Like she doesn't get a lot of praise and a lot of kudos from people for being that way. But maybe she should, you know. And um, sometimes I think, like, every family has a person like that who steps up to the plate and, uh, you know, helps people out when they're really in need of help. And uh, it's no small thing, you know. It's no small thing. It's easy to kind of forget when things are going okay, you know, There's no crisis or anything, but as soon as something, you know, happens, as soon as, like, turmoil comes around in one form or another, there are an unlimited number of ways that trouble can come into our lives, right? Unexpectedly, without any warning, you know, we find ourselves in a situation, and she's the one, you know, she's always the one, she's consistent, There's just this part of her being, this part of her soul that is just so generous and so considerate. And, um, you know, I don't know. I guess that's that's why she's on my mind, you know. Every once in a while, you know, the people in my life will just kind of blow through my mind, you know, for no reason at all. And uh, I'll remember things like that, you know. Actually, it's kind of an interesting story, too, because, you know, when I was probably about 11 years old, that was when she was born, and um, it was the first grandchild for my parents, okay, and uh, it was a little bit unexpected, you know, my brother was about 18 years old, Her, her father was about 18 years old, and her mother was the same age. And, uh, whoa, man, you know, dealing with a teen pregnancy uh, in my house, you know, that was like a really big deal. It was, I suppose, kind of like disruptive in some ways, but, you know, in some ways I kind of had to grow up a little fast, you know, and, uh, you know, kind of like take on the role of caretaker sometimes, you know. I was her uncle, and, uh, you know, sometimes she needed a babysitter, and I was the only one who was available, you know, so I would do it, and, uh, you know, I watched her grow up and uh, graduate from high school, and then she went to college, and, you know, she even came up here to Massachusetts to visit my wife and I once, and it was just really nice, like, she's just a really kind of special person. You know, and, you know, as her uncle and somebody who's kind of watched her grow up, I've watched her blossom into this amazing personality, you know, 
this really um, motherly kind of lady. And like I said, I think like probably every family has one of those. And and I think about it a lot. I do. How um, I think about how she doesn't get any praise for that. She doesn't get enough praise for that because we're talking about, you know, years and years of this from her where, you know, someone is in need and she's the one who steps up first. She follows through. She, you know, sees it through to the end and she makes sure that everything is okay. You know, I suppose it's like uh, maybe we should all just kind of take a moment to think about those people that are in our lives that, you know, kind of step up when we don't or when we can't. And uh, they make sure that all the bases are covered, you know, when a bad situation pops up. Yeah. And, you know, when I went back to Cleveland uh, around Thanksgiving time for my mother's birthday party, that surprise birthday party I talked about, yeah, she was the one who masterminded this big surprise party. And, you know, it wasn't just a, a small little affair. I mean, it was catered. Uh, you know, we rented a hall and all that kind of stuff. And she was the one who orchestrated the whole thing, you know. And, uh, you know, I was talking to my mom afterwards and I was kind of saying, hey, you know, we should probably do something for her. You know, like as a family, we should all kind of like maybe chip in or something and have some kind of something, you know, for her to honor her. And to say thank you for all the times that she stepped up like that. Because I shared with you a couple of examples, but I didn't share all of them with you. And let me tell you, if I did, this would be a long podcast because it's just years and years of it. And, uh, you know, I've also been thinking about um, that friend of mine that uh, attempted suicide a while back, probably around Thanksgiving time. And, uh, you know, I mentioned him in the previous podcast. And, uh, you know, he's been on my mind, obviously. It's just one of those things. It's like, uh, I can't quite shake it, you know. It's kind of bothering me quite a bit that somebody that I cared about that much was in that much trouble and uh, was ready to kind of throw in the towel, throw it all away. And uh, I had no idea. Nobody had any idea. And um, I've been thinking about that, you know. Uh, And I've been thinking about how, you know, he was worried and he had lost hope. And um, I guess I kind of think, like, how easy it is sometimes to slip into that kind of thinking, you know, that, uh, like, everything is wrong and there's no hope, there's no way out, there's no there's no light at the end of the tunnel, you know. Um, and I wonder why that is, you know. Why is it that it's so much easier for us to be, like, naturally pessimistic, you know, uh, or worry, we worry a lot about the future, or uh, we're not sure if we're headed in the right direction in our lives, it's so easy to fall into that negative kind of thinking. But 
after the situation with this friend of mine that uh, you know was ready to hurt himself, and he really did you know start the process of doing that. And fortunately, you know, for him and for everyone else, he came to his senses at the last minute. But um, I got to thinking about it, and I'm like, you know, what if, like, when you worry about something? When you're really worried about something, what if you think to yourself that everything is going to be okay? You know, like instead of going to the negative and thinking that everything is going to go wrong, what if you tried to practice the idea of considering at least the idea when you feel that way, when you're feeling doubtful or fearful or unsure? about the future what if we just think to ourselves like everything is gonna be okay like what if what if everything you're worried about right now the biggest worries that you have or the things that you're just you know worrying about today right now as you're listening to this podcast you know what if everything is going to be okay have you ever considered that you know, when you're worrying about something, have you ever thought that way? I mean, I, I guess I kind of do. You know, I've started to anyway uh, lately. Just, you know, it's so easy to be pessimistic. You know, it's like um, maybe it's a way of protecting ourselves so that we're not disappointed with the outcome of something or like the future. Okay, but what if everything is going to be okay. You know? Think about that. What if everything you're worried about right now is going to be okay? You don't need to worry. It's going to be okay. What if? And I know there's probably people out there going like, oh yeah, you know, it's like wishful thinking or a Pollyannish kind of approach to, you know, crisis or something or, or you know, uh, worry or something. But it's worth kind of examining at least and maybe trying to practice it sometimes. <laughs> I, I think, you know. Um, yeah, what if? What if everything is going to be fine, folks? What if everything is going to be okay? What if the world is not going to come crashing down, you know? What if the sky is not falling, you know? What if? Think about that one for the rest of the day. And I suppose I could leave off today with this little tidbit here. A little bit of advice. Remember this, folks. We should expect the worst. We should hope for the best. And pray for something in between. And you know what? I'm going to leave it there. And I'm going to talk to you some more tomorrow. Peace out, everybody. All right, happy innovators. It is Thursday, February 6th, 2020. And I have a little story I want to share with you today. Uh, It was back in the day when I was uh, working as a bouncer at a club in Cleveland. Pretty big sized club. And I worked with maybe six or seven other guys that were bouncers. And on this particular day, we had to arrive early because there was an artist named Cisco that was coming in for a concert and um, 
I was, you know, meeting with the owner of the club and all the other guys and everything, and they were talking about how this artist, Cisco, I think it was Cisco, I'm pretty sure. I uh, can't trust my memory 100%, but I'm pretty sure it was Cisco. Yeah, anyway, so we're up in the office talking about the evening and like everything that's going to have to happen and what we're going to need to do, where we need to be. And, uh, uh, it was kind of like a unusual situation because this particular artist had, you know, a really long list of specific things that he wanted, uh, at the club, you know, from the time he arrived until the time that he left. And uh, it was unusual. You know, it was an unusual amount of specific, detailed things, you know. And uh, the owner of the club and the guys that I worked with were kind of like grunting and grumbling, like, this is ridiculous and blah, 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 you know, along those lines. And I have to admit, I kind of felt the same way, right? But, um... It was kind of an interesting life lesson, I guess, Um, because when Cisco pulls up in this limousine and his entourage jumps out along with him and uh, right away, almost immediately, him and the club owner, you know, meet, shake hands and they start talking over some stuff, I guess, with his management and him and everything and... uh, I wasn't there for the whole conversation, but uh, I heard some of it. And when it was all over with, you know, I was talking to the owner of the club and he was kind of telling me, um, basically, uh, you know, he had complained or made a remark to the manager or the artist himself. I'm not sure, but he, he made a remark like this list is pretty ridiculous and I'm not sure if we're going to be able to meet everything that you're asking for on this list and uh, we're doing our best, you know, that kind of thing. And it was interesting because uh, at first glance, you know, when the situation arose, the thinking was like, man, this guy is like a prima donna, you know, he just, he wants the world and, uh, you know, he expects it to be handed to him, that kind of thing, you know, uh, negative, you know, but the point that the management made and I guess the artist himself had made to the club owner was and this is the reason I'm talking about it or even thinking about it today because it just kind of blew through my mind you know um, but the the response from the artist was something along these lines and I'm paraphrasing but it was like I've worked my whole life I struggled so hard to get here you know, to this level of success that I'm at. And it's been a really, really difficult, you know, arduous struggle to get to the top of the charts and to be recognized and, you know, famous and, and successful, you know. And it's not going to last very long. I mean, this is coming from the artist. This is his point of view. Like, it's not going to last forever. And I know that. So while I'm here at the top, I want everything that I ask for. And, you know, that was like his point of view. And I always remembered that, you know, like it was an interesting 
turn of events, like an interesting point of view. Like, yeah, I guess that would make sense, wouldn't it? Like, you work so hard to get to the top, and then once you get to the top, you know you're not going to be there forever, right? So his prerogative was like, I am going to take as much of this as I can. Like, I want the money. I want the girls. I want the respect. I want everything on my rider contract. I want these lights. I want a limousine with booze in it. I mean, I want whatever I ask for because, you know, in just a few short weeks, a few short months or something like that, he'll be right back to where he started. You know, obscurity, you know, and subsequently, I mean, one can't deny, I mean, does anybody even know where Cisco is anymore? I don't. So, I guess he made his point, and it was correct. And that's just my opinion, but I always remembered that story, you know? It's kind of like, uh, you know, along the same lines of that story about Van Halen, you know, with the colored M&Ms on their contract. Although, there is kind of a reasonable excuse for that whole story. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but I guess back in the day... You know, Van Halen was on tour, you know, back in the 80s when they were just starting to get huge, you know, like massive. And, uh, you know, they had it specified in their contract whenever they played a concert that they would have a bowl of M&Ms, like with all the brown M&Ms removed or something like that, like a really specific detail. And, you know, when it comes to writer contracts... Usually, uh, I guess I should explain what a writer contract is, right? Okay, a writer contract is like when you're agreed to do a concert, like in addition to the contract to actually perform the concert, there's another contract. And that's the one that says like what you want to drink backstage, uh, how many towels you want, how many bottles of water, uh, what kind of food, what kind of catering, um, all vegetarian or something like that. You know, you ha- you can be specific about what you want on your rider contract. And Van Halen was notorious for, you know, having very difficult and specific things uh, and requests to be met on their rider contract. And if those needs are not met or if those requests that are on the contract are not met, the venue or the promoter or whoever's putting on the show will forfeit a portion of their profits uh, to the artist, okay, like a percentage or something. So Van Halen had in their contract, their writer contract, that backstage they wanted a bowl of M&Ms, okay, with all of the brown M&Ms removed. And, you know, at first glance that seems like a really frivolous and silly kind of request, but as, you know, David Lee Roth later explained, there was actually a very logical reason for doing it that way. And the reason they did it that way was because at that time, Van Halen was using a very expensive and very dangerous lighting and pyrotechnics setup, okay? And they wanted to make sure that 
the concert promoters were reading the entire contract to make sure that when they stepped out on stage, they didn't get killed or something from some stupid mistake because somebody didn't read the contract and the specifics of what they were requesting you know, for their stage performance. So if they showed up at the venue you know, in the dressing room and they saw that there were brown M&Ms in the bowl, they would know that the concert promoter did not read the entire contract. And that was like a safety precaution for them and their road crew. Okay? Like, this promoter did not read the contract, so therefore, you know, we may actually be in danger here. You know, that kind of thing. So, it's kind of like a fail-safe, right? Um... Actually, you know, it's kind of funny now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, David Lee Roth from uh, Van Halen. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, he's a pretty fascinating character. Um, Of course, he's older now and everything. And, uh, you know, Van Halen has, you know, pulled him back into the band. And, you know, I'm not really sure about what's going on there or whatever, but... um, you know, my impressions of David Lee Roth over like the course of my lifetime was that he was kind of like this boneheaded, like wild, carefree, you know, stupid kind of lead singer guy, you know, this rock star. But that's not the truth, actually. Um, actually, David Lee Roth is a very good actor because all those years that he was the front man for Van Halen and then he went off into his solo career, he kind of like projected this image of being like the rock and roll party guy. But he really wasn't. In real life, he was not that. He was actually a highly disciplined, you know, extremely intelligent martial artist. Um, he was not a goofball. He's eccentric and he's you know out there and everything but he's probably a genius you know he's probably a genius and um unbeknownst to many people uh, myself included but i recently discovered this about him um was that in that downtime after his solo career ended when van halen was a thing of the past and sammy hagar was their singer and Everybody kind of forgot about David Lee Roth. Do you want to know what he did with his time? I mean, this is just amazing to me. It blows my mind. Um, he became a EMT, a paramedic in New Jersey. Like, that is what he did. He became an EMT. He was saving lives. He was, you know, responding to calls, you know, public service and, you know, I don't know about you, but I've always had the utmost respect for EMTs and paramedics because, man, that's some tough stuff, you know? What a, what a difficult job, you know? Um, I can't even imagine it, really. I can't. I can't imagine what it would be like to spend your days doing that all the time. But uh, David Lee Roth did, and I'll tell you what. I gained a whole new perspective on him and a whole new respect for that guy. You know, uh, of course, now he's, you know, he's still famous and everything. He's still out there. And wow, to think that he paused for a moment and went into that 
field, you know, and then later on made a return back to show business. But that happened. He actually did that, you know, a paramedic, David Lee Roth. I mean, can you imagine like getting in like a car accident or having some kind of health issue and you call 911 and David Lee Roth shows up? Like, would your friends even believe you? You know, pretty amazing, pretty amazing character. Um, yeah, kind of, I guess, in some ways, like a hero to me now, you know, I admire people that are able to do stuff like that and they're willing to, you know, they're willing to really kind of go out there, go, you know, uh, out on a limb and try something new and really go off into a different direction and still manage to keep it together. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. You know, Van Halen forever. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty then. So that wraps up my Thursday talk. And I'll talk to you some more tomorrow, folks. Peace out. Well, good morning, everybody. It's Friday, February 7th, 2020. The final day of my talking every day experiment. And uh, let's see. What can I talk about today? Um, Well, I guess I should say, first of all, back on Monday, I told you I was working on some new videos and some new music. And as of the moment that I'm sitting here talking right now, I got the music done. I got the video done, but I just have to put the music to the video. So that's where I'm at right now. I am meeting my goals that I had set for myself on Monday. And uh, very soon you will be seeing three brand new videos from me, Pipe Choir, uh, a song called Division that I wrote a long time ago. Um, I kind of revisited it. I brought it into my new technology, you know, that old song, that old session. kind of dragged it into my new technology and I kind of cleaned it up and did all the things that I've learned how to do, you know, over the past 10 or 15 or 20 years. I think I wrote Division uh, back in like 2008, the song was written, and uh, yeah, so it's been actually it's been a long time. <laughs> Didn't even realize that. Uh, man, it's been over a decade, but I guess that kind of speaks to you know the kind of songs I'm writing. Um, I guess they might sound old to some people, but to me they don't. To me, they still stand up. It's a pretty good tune, and uh, so it was a lot of fun. You know, obviously getting into it again and. Um, I guess that's like a that's a part of my personality. I think um, that I'm one of those people that likes when something is like really dirty, and I can clean it like really really good and make it look like brand new. I like that. I get a lot of satisfaction from that. You know, it sounds kind of stupid, but um, I've kind of been like that my whole life. So uh, I guess that kind of rolls into this whole idea of you know writing a song in 2008 and then redoing it, revisiting it, you know, cleaning it up, polishing it, you know, giving it more punch, you know, what, 12 years later. So I'm sitting here in my studio with a cup of coffee on a Friday. It's freezing outside. I'm going to get a sip of my coffee. Hang on. And uh, I can't talk too long today because I want to get my stuff done. But um, 
You know, recently somebody made a comment to me that I'm kind of like uh, the poor man's Dave Grohl <laughs> from Nirvana. I thought that was pretty funny. You know, it's uh, <laughs> not necessarily true because I think that Dave Grohl is much more talented than me. Uh, but <laughs> I thought it was kind of like a nice thing to say, and it was flattering and everything and I appreciated it but uh, you know it made me think about this because whenever somebody mentions uh, Dave Grohl to me you know they go like oh he was the drummer for Nirvana or oh you know I love Nirvana or oh I love Foo Fighters they're awesome I love that song Monkey Wrench you know they, they talk like that but and I'm the same way too. I mean, I like Nirvana. They were like, okay. I think Nirvana was a little bit, at least to me anyway, I think they were kind of like a little bit overrated sometimes. But uh, I remember when Nevermind came out. I mean, I do remember that time. It was probably about 91 or 92. I was drumming in that band called Thumper Incorporated uh, back in the day. And uh, I remember specifically sitting in my car. I had a Granada. <laughs> this big monster car. Like a big gray Granada. And uh, a beater, you know. And uh, I was with my girlfriend of like five years. You know, we were in the car and I think I was on my way to practice or I was on my way to a show with her. Or no, maybe we were on our way home. I think we were on our way home from a concert. And, uh, you know, we had both heard smells like teen spirit like we were we had both heard it but um we were talking about it you know she heard it at, uh, at a separate time than i did and we were had both told each other about it like oh have you heard that song it's really good blah 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 so the song came on the radio and i pulled over like to the side of the road and i turned it up like i, I said like let's just really listen to this song and we turned it up and man it was just so good you know yeah it was different and like oh it was the end of hair metal and all that kind of stuff but for me you know what it was just really good it was really intense you know um partially because of the production partially because of the performance but i mean i distinctly remember that feeling or that thought that this is really good. Like, this sounds really, really good. Um, and of course, it was like, you know, the swan song for all that hair metal that was coming out at the time and like everything that was considered to be popular just immediately changed. And that did happen. It did. Um, but I didn't so much like the rest of their material. I honestly didn't. Like, to this day, I uh, just, I'm not a huge Nirvana fan, you know? Um, I give them credit for changing things. I give them credit for being a great band because they were, you know, there are so many people that love that band. They can't all be wrong, you know? Um, so I guess that's okay, right? If you can hear something in the song that I don't hear, or if you can enjoy an aspect of something that I can't, that's fine, right? Um, but Smells Like Teen Spirit, wow. It's like a jackhammer. You know, audio fireworks, you know. 
Uh, I say that all the time. When a song has that spark, man, when a song has that explosiveness and that power, you know, I just go, audio fireworks. Man, that's what that's what I shoot for, you know? That's what I'm shooting for here. Uh, when you put on the headphones and you press play on something that I recorded, that's what I want. You know, I want it to blow your hair back, you know? And, uh, you know, I might fall short. Most of the time, but I'm trying, right? I'm trying. That's what I'm shooting for. And with Nirvana and Smells Like Teen Spirit, man, they really hit the target on that one, obviously, because it will echo forever through the rest of time. There will always be somebody, you know, listening to uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time or the whole Nevermind album. You know, they'll be hearing it for the first time and rediscovering Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic. Um, but Dave Grohl, you know, when I think about him, uh, he's kind of an interesting character. You know, I think I'm, I'm like always impressed by Dave Grohl, like in his personality and the way that he treats people. He seems to me to be much like Tom Petty was like, he treats people right. He treats them well. Um, but he's like really talented. I mean, his voice is friggin' amazing. You know, he's a great drummer. He can play guitar really well. But man, his voice, it's like, oh my gosh, can you believe how great he sounds? And uh, the lyrics and the ideas and the things that he comes up with, it's amazing, you know? Um, and, you know, I gotta say this too. Uh, and I think I might be the only person. I can think of that would ever say something like this, but um, for all of you out there that are not musicians, you know, you're not players, you don't sing and all that kind of stuff, let me tell you something, at least from my perspective, okay? Singing and playing guitar at the same time is very difficult to do for me. Like, and I would imagine that it's probably like that for some other people too. Like, it's just one of those things it's hard to do well you know when I watch somebody like Dave Matthews like how well he plays while he's singing it's so crazy and Dave Grohl is a lot like that too it's like I can't believe he can play guitar like that and he can sing like that at the same time that's friggin amazing to me okay but um What's also weird about Dave Grohl, when you really think about it, okay, is that, you know, Kurt Cobain died back in, like, 1994, and, you know, Nirvana ended in 1994 as a band, and every single interview that Dave Grohl has ever done for the Foo Fighters or for whatever... Every single time somebody brings up Kurt Cobain, somebody asks about Nirvana, somebody asks about Nevermind. I mean, it's like for the rest of his existence on Earth, he will always be talking about Kurt Cobain. I mean, it's just the way it is. I challenge you to find an interview with Dave Grohl, where it's not at least mentioned or brought up. No matter how successful Foo Fighters are, 
no matter how many records they sell, how many concerts at Wembley Stadium they sell out, no matter how many videos they make, no matter how many albums they make, no matter how many interviews they do, he will always be talking about Kurt Cobain for the rest of his life. Think about that. I mean, at some point, right, it's got to be like a curse, right? Like, I mean, sometimes he's got to be like, please don't ask me about Nirvana or Kurt Cobain. Please ask me about anything else other than that. Not going to happen. They're going to ask. So I always kind of feel sorry for him a little bit whenever I see him in an interview or something like that. It's like, oh, is it miserable sometimes to be Dave Grohl? You know, is it like a pain in the ass to have to answer a question about Kurt Cobain? Even though you're talking about the album you just released like this week, you know, you're talking about some guy who died in 1994, you know, he's not even in the band, you know, <laughs> it's like it'll never end for the rest of his life. Think about that, folks. And uh, so I think I've talked enough for one week, right? So I'm going to get going here and I'm going to get back to work, but I'll be talking to you soon. So in the meantime, folks, this is Mike Bostwick from Pipe Choir Records signing off. And remember, folks, if you want to keep what you've got, you've got to give it away. Take it easy. Well, hey, hey there, happy innovators. Today is Saturday, February 8th, 2020. And it's probably later in the evening, around 7 o'clock or something like that. And, uh, you know, I just got done editing the podcast you just heard. And I was kind of thinking to myself, I think I'm like forgetting something, you know, what am I forgetting? And then I remembered, it's like, oh yeah, I want to put some music at the end of the podcast. Like, duh, I totally forgot about that. But I think I was kind of, you know, wrestling with the idea, like the podcast was already like an hour long. So maybe it would be better to just leave it like that. But then I was like, no, I'm going to put some music at the end. I think there are some people who are enjoying that uh, very much. So... That's the fun part for me, really, kind of like deciding, like, what song do I want to share, you know? And so what I came up with for this podcast this time around, um, I'm going to share with you a song that I recently wrote and recorded and released as a video too, probably technically as the first song released for my new album that I'm putting together as we speak. So uh, it's a song called Here Comes the Sun. And uh, it's kind of a special song to me because uh, it's one of those songs that really just came out of nowhere. And uh, I wrote it, you know, from beginning to end. I wrote that song in probably about two or three hours. 
recorded and everything. Um, I started with the drums, you know, and I just started going, started adding some guitar ideas, and then I started to sing over that and kind of doing like a scat vocal, right? But, um, you know, like a, a vocal line, singing words that would be replaced later, you know, like I would, I would go back and refine it, you know. But um, as I listened to it, like for the next few days after I wrote it, uh, as I listened to it, I kind of thought like it doesn't really need to be redone or like re-sung or I don't need to write new words for it. It's kind of like all there, you know, all in one breath, like it all just came out, you know. Um, uh, and, uh, I originally wrote it and recorded it like in a slower tempo. So, um, the only thing I had to do really was speed up the tempo of the song a little bit and, uh, you know, re-record everything to that tempo, that speed. And I re-sang it like exactly the way I had already done it. I didn't add any words. I didn't change anything. And um, when that kind of thing happens, it's really kind of a special thing. And it's kind of an amazing thing to me that um, like at the beginning of the day, when I wrote that song, that song didn't exist. And then when I went to bed that night, it did. Like it was like it just came from out of nowhere. And, uh, you know, it's like uh, actually, you know, when I listen to it now and I listen to what I'm saying and everything, it's at least to me anyway, it's like a really kind of profound thing I'm saying. Um, so I'll let you listen to it and see if you can kind of pick up on what I'm talking about here. So without any further ado, here is the song. Uh, Here Comes the Sun by Pipe Choir, written about maybe two months ago or three months ago. Not sure when I wrote it. Oops. But um, enjoy and have a good week, everybody. Peace out and you'll be hearing from me soon. Hang loose. Take it easy. Come 